This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. The title drop video for my upcoming novel, Only the Dead, is out there now. You can find it on my YouTube channel and on my social channels. My guest today is the great Stephen Pressfield. You might know him from Gates of Fire, The Legend of Bagger Vance, The Afghan Campaign, and his latest novel is A Man at Arms, and then his book on the nonfiction side, Put Your Ass Where Your Heart Wants to Be, about the creative process and getting the work done. He is a dear friend, and he is a wealth of knowledge. His latest book is a memoir, and that is called Government Cheese, and that is out now. Without further ado, Stephen Pressfield. All right, there he is. And there he is. Hey, how are you? Hey, Jack, you're looking great. You are looking <laughs> great, too. I see that Smith Corona back there. Is that the original? It, well, it's actually a royal. It's That's a royal, okay. It's original, original. Okay, where's the Smith That's Corona? The typewriter there. That's the Heming typewriter. No, that one's actually inside. I haven't found the best spot for it yet. Uh-huh. These are just a, there's a Smith Corona here. Here's a royal right here. Um, and then the uh, Hemingway one is upstairs. So I need to uh, find a good spot. How did you come spot. to get that, Jack? That one, so I fa- uh, a fan found out that there was a Hemingway auction, and it was right before COVID hit. So it was January, February of 2020, and knew that I was uh, had Hemingway books, had referenced him a few times, and it was the... Paul Newman's partner in Newman's Own. Hey, Dana, how are you? <laughs> great, great. I, I just saw. Ran in to grab something off the printer, but wanted to say hi. That's just what I did right before I uh, ran in here. Is uh, waiting for that printer. It's like searching, searching, and then ah, finally prints. Nice, you, nice to see you. Good to see you. Have fun. We sure will. We sure. We always do. No. <laughs> um, and uh, so it was Paul Newman's partner in Newman's Own, uh, whose name I'm blanking on right now. Uh, A.E. Hotchner? Yes, yes, A.E. Hotchner. Exactly. I knew you would know. Um, and he passed away, uh, gosh, end of 2021, something around, something uh-huh. like that. But uh, he had a bunch of Hemingways. Uh, he got he bought that typewriter for Hemingway to write a movable feast oh, on, wow. uh, and gave it to him, and then kept it in his collection. And then when he passed away, a bunch of his Hemingway memorabilia artifacts went up for auction, and a fan bought it for me. Wow! Wow! The how yeah. nice! Wow! Yeah. What a guy! What a person! Huh? Very nice. And he wants to remain anonymous, but. Uh, yeah, ah. incredible. Absolutely ah. incredible. So ah. uh, I have that. I just need to figure out if I need to put it in. Like I, I feel like I need to put it under a glass or plastic kind of case yeah. to keep the dust off. And I'm just not quite exactly sure that's gonna gonna go yet. We should be recording this right now. Well, I think we are. We are recording. Let's do it. Yeah. You know, just to ramble a little bit. It's funny. I got onto sort of reading kind of in a Hemingway kick. Uh, Lately, and uh, I read that book, um, Everybody Behaves Badly. Uh-huh. Exactly. That? I do. I have that upstairs. Yep. And another one by Morley Callahan called mm-hmm. That Summer in Paris. Have, have you ever read that? I've heard of that, but I have not read it. Nope. You know, I don't even think I have actually, that one. It's it's pretty cool. You know, I mean, it's, it's sort of like a regular guy who was there uh-huh. telling you sort of the real truth of what was going on, Ooh. you know? Uh, 
I'm, anyway, if, I don't know why, but it's been on my mind a lot, Hemingway myself. So interesting. Really cool that you got the typewriter. It is. Yeah, I feel extremely fortunate. Um, and actually, his, um, uh, is it great-grandson? I messed that up. It's the grandson or great-grandson reached out. So I got connected with the family through that. They saw me post about ah. it and uh, and reached out. So, um, yeah, incredible. Um, ah. So there's a little bit of a, a connection there now. But uh, so what's the royal then behind you? Because uh, the this, uh, the Smith Corona is what you had in the van all those yeah. years, right? Where is that this one? Is, you know, I tell you, I'm not even sure what that connection was. This used to be when I worked in advertising in New York. This was the typewriter I had. No kidding. And at some point, the company said, you can buy your typewriter if you want. Okay. For 25. So I bought, I don't know what happened to Smith Corona, but this is, this was it. It will stand in its stead. No kidding. Oh, you don't know what happened to the Smith Corona that was in the van no, for I all those years? No, I don't. <laughs> oh, no. That, yeah. that would be, it, it was about the size of that, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Very similar size. Yeah. So now I've taken to, to collecting. So now I'm uh, looking for typewriters that may have gone over the beaches at Iwo Jima or Normandy that are stamped uh, property cool. of U.S. Army, property of U.S. Marine Corps, property of U.S. Navy, uh, that sort that of thing. Um, I'll never be able to know if they actually did unless it was in someone's private, yeah. you know, someone, someone held onto it, but, uh, just that it could have, and it was from that time frame, yeah. and it has that stamp. Um, yeah. so I'm looking for those so I can have kind of, uh, from all the services lined up. That's a great idea. I know, you know, that like Tom Hanks has an amazing yeah. collection. Yeah. Yeah. There's a show, uh, did they call it typewriter? Was it on uh, Netflix or? Amazon Prime that uh, Tom Hanks goes through his whole collection and uh, and talks about them and it's really really oh, cool. No, I didn't know about that. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, it's really cool. I think it's about an hour long or or something along oh. along those lines. Oh, they visit cool. a typewriter restoration store in Oakland, uh, California, and oh. uh, and and just uh, people's love of these uh, these old machines, which is yeah. really really yeah. cool. But I think about them often as I'm typing away because obviously there was no autocorrect. Um, there was yes. going back and trying to edit, and oh my goodness, I just uh, just imagining how much more work and therefore how much more thought maybe might have gone into every word or sentence knowing that uh, you're going to have to, I don't know when whiteout was invented or you're going to have to one line yeah. and you're going to have to, uh, it's, it's not as easy to kind of edit as you go. Yeah. Not to mention carbon paper, you know, to make oh, copies and all that goodness. sort of stuff, you know? Yeah. 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 That's yeah. wild. But I do want to talk to you about the, that typewriter because it plays into the story of when well, you're working in New York. This is it. Let's <laughs> pretend that this is Well, it. no, that one, we can talk about that one in terms of writing copy in New York and this uh, whole journey. Because okay. um, the, uh, the new book, when this drops, will be out. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about the title, Government Cheese. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, as you know, it's uh, like the... Um, one of the uh, products that we delivered when I was driving tractor trailers back in my early, my 20s, was um, surplus food, government surplus food, to poor communities on the coast of North Carolina. And uh, it was almost always black churches. In fact, it was always black churches. Now, with a black minister and a totally black congregation, and... Uh, you know, I, I would drive out there and deliver this food. And I got, when I started, it was always kind of my favorite trip because you really felt like you were actually doing somebody some good. Yeah. And, and also because it was such a, you, 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 you can relate to this, Jack. It was such a, 
a real capital R real world out there. You know, there was not the slightest hint of the middle class mm. or anything. This was, you know, sharecroppers and people like that, you know, um, but really cool, interesting people. And I, I've always, I felt when I thought about it later that writing is like that. I feel like when, when as a writer, that I'm delivering a load, mm. that I'm, you know, I start out with a full trailer, I drive it to where it has to go, I park it, I open the doors, and people unload whatever, they, sort of like this surplus food, right? And it's, and and I don't know if you feel this way, Jack, but like as a driver on one of those trips, you were anonymous. Mm. They would always address you as driver. Nobody ever asked me my name. Nobody ever said, is your name Steve? Whatever, right? It would be, you know, driver, would you pull, a, pull your vehicle in over here? And I feel like as a writer, a lot of times, like I'm anonymous too, and I want to be anonymous. I'm just, it's what I'm, the load I'm delivering that counts. And I'm just sort of a vehicle for that, you know? Just and when it's all done, you have that empty trailer, they say, thank you. You close the doors and you drive away for the wow. next one. So anyway, so that's what that's what government cheese means to me. It's, wow. a, it's a metaphor for writing. No, I love that. And then you got to go back and and load that trailer up again and then take it back out for delivery. Yeah. Amazing. And the other thing, in, as you know from the book, is that the, this the, these particular loads were loaded by prisoners. You went out to, you know, a warehouse in a town called Butner, and they were all like young, all black, young black guys, like really fit, you know, like 17 year old, 18 year old guys who loaded the thing. And somehow, I don't know what the metaphor is there, but that somehow seemed very appropriate for what the, pro the process was. Interesting. So anyway, that's what government cheese is all about. Yeah, no, and it's a uh, well. Is that where the uh, was it a script or the the book that you wrote about prisons? Oh, uh, uh, at one point that was a script. That, that was a script. Yeah, yeah. And did that one sell? I forget. There were so there's no, never did, never, never did. did. Do you still have it? Uh, I do. I have it somewhere. But that was the first script I ever. It got me an agent, so it got me from New York to 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 Hollywood. Yeah. You know, with an actual agent, you know, wow. you know how important that is. Jeff. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it's a, it's an interesting ecosystem, how all those things work together, an agent yeah. and now now multiple agents and of course, publisher, editor um, and uh, and now the uh, screenwriting teams and writers rooms and yeah, you know, all the yeah, rest of yeah. it. It's, uh, it's amazing. And directors and producers and executive producers and how, uh, how that whole thing feeds entertainment attorneys, um, <laughs> you know, all, all of that. It's uh, it's quite fascinating. I'm always yeah. a sponge. I'm always, always learning, um, to include this morning. Yeah. Right, right before I ran yeah. down here, but, uh, yeah, incredible. And this is a memoir. So how long have you been thinking? I mean, you've been writing essentially pieces of, memoirs for quite some time um, with uh, your series of books on creativity. Of course, most everybody listening has read The War of Art. Um, There's so many others in this series, Turning Pro, Authentic Swing. Uh, no one wants to read your shit. Like all these, are, they're so fantastic. Um, but uh, so you've been writing bits and pieces of memoirs for, for quite some time. But uh, what was uh, the impetus to put it all, all together? Um, it's actually my girlfriend, Diana, who was just, I don't know if we recorded when she just said hi to you, but you know, I have been like in the war of art and other books like that. I would allude to certain, you know, periods of my life to make mm -hmm. a point, you know, but I never actually put any of that together because I thought who's going to be interested in these, you know, 
stories from your life, right? So, but Diana said, you know, you've, I told her, of course, I've told her a lot of stuff. And she said, you should write this down. You know, people are interested in this kind of stuff. And I kind of resisted, you know how it is, but I resisted for like years. <laughs> and, uh, but finally, I, I just kind of started. And I thought that, uh, that this would be useful to people because people like people who are aspiring writers or artists, they look at somebody like you and they wonder, well, was he just born a writer? It was all of a sudden he popped out and he, he was doing incredible. Right. But they wonder, well, how did he get there? You know, what were the steps? Mm -hmm. You know, he wasn't just born with a typewriter in front of him. So I thought maybe it would be interesting to tell my story because it's such a, it's such a crazy story over so many years. Like it took me whatever, 27 years from the time I first quit a job to write until I had a novel published and I thought it would be useful to people to, to turn to learn the real story, you know, mm -hmm. and and what the struggle was like. And so anyway, that's kind of the the uh, the reason behind it. And we'll see if it's of interest to people. I have no idea. Well, I'm sure I'm, will. I'm nervous about this. No, one, no, no, you have no reason to be nervous. Uh, and and it, what's what's great is that it's it's not just for for writers or uh, for for artists. Um, it's for everyone because you talk about struggle in there and this resiliency and uh it uh, you lived you lived a lot of life uh a, a leading up to becoming an overnight success maybe right yeah uh, like how many people think that you were an overnight success with the legend of bagger vance uh how many people just think that because they don't know uh especially people not in directly connected to the world of screenwriting in los angeles yeah uh, yeah, it's yeah everyone outside of that bubble you essentially appeared with the legend of Bagger Vance. And then, uh, then of course, all of these amazing books and I could all of there, some of them are still in boxes. I thought I had the exact box and I was running, <laughs> that's why I was running through looking for all of them. Cause I have every single one of your books and, uh, and these ones happen to be on my, uh, on my shelf. And the other ones I thought were just in this box cause we're still kind of unpacking, but, uh, but I have them all, but right here, gates of fire, of course, everyone, almost everyone in the military, everyone in special operations, I would say, uh, that I knew anyway, has read gates of fire. Um, and uh, it really, it really actually touches my heart, Jack, that you have those books and that, you know, that, that they, you know, that they connected in some way it really makes me feel, feel great. Oh yeah. No, I'm just, I, I just feel bad that they aren't all here because they're all within a hundred yards of us <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> and I was like, I know they're here cause we're still kind of unpacking and figuring out what goes in which rooms and, and all that sort of a thing. Um, but these ones are always, these ones I keep very close by right here for those that are, that are watching. So these are the books on, on creativity right here. Um, and I keep these close by because, uh, they're like the muse essentially, because they're giving me a little bit of, I just look at them. I don't need to pick them up and go through them <laughs> all the time. I have a couple in here that are, that are marked though, that I do go back to this in turning pro. Um, and, uh, I shared this with you, uh, a while back, but, uh, I wrote, really the uh because uh, i had the theme of revenge without constraint with I, which i yeah, also yeah, got yeah. from you by misinterpreting something yeah, the, yeah, the story yeah, that you told great, on yeah. rogan uh but in this one in the beginning of turning pro i have right in here uh there's a man going around taking names johnny cash and uh that's what really guided that whole first novel the terminal list uh, uh -huh. i wrote it right down here in turning pro and then i wrote page 71 down next to it so i'm gonna flip to 71 uh right here and uh, i have this written uh, i have this um, marked here. And these are, these are what you wrote here. Uh, be brave, my heart, uh, plant your feet and square your shoulders to the enemy. Meet him along the man killing spears. Hold your ground. I 
that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah that's that's, that's cool. uh, just so people know that you and I didn't invent that. That's from a, a true life warrior poet named Archilochus of Paros, who wrote that like in 700 BC. Amazing. Um, one of the great, uh, you know, insights into what it must have been like to fight in a phalanx. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And I have a, a, a lot of the pages in this one I have I have marked. There's, there's so many things I have marked in Turning Pro because when I got out of the military, I decided that, hey, because of this, I'm not a uh, professional uh, special operations uh, soldier anymore. Uh, I am now a writer, even though I had nothing published, nothing. Uh -huh. uh, but because of this, I clip flipped that switch in my mind immediately and became a professional writer. Um, and, uh, which I am to this, to this day. But anyway, point being, I have all of these close at hand, um, because they <laughs> give this, uh, give off a certain, a certain energy. And this is <laughs> so much wisdom in these pages. Uh, and here's of course, warrior ethos. And this is another one that everyone I know in special operations has read. Uh, this is marked up and highlighted. Uh, we have nobody wants to read your shit, do the work, uh, the artist journey, authentic swing, the war of art turning pro, and then your latest, uh, put your ass where your heart wants to be. Uh, and well, that makes me feel great, Jack, that you have all those. Things. I have them all. And thank you for the surprise in this one. Cause you didn't tell me that, uh, that you <laughs> yeah, were going to write a little chapter in there and mention me there. And, uh, so I got <laughs> to that on my own without being, without any uh, hints that it was in there. And that was such a surprise that it was so fun to, to, to read that. So thank you. Okay. Really yeah, I was just, uh, for those listening, I don't know what we're talking about. I was, <laughs> there's a chapter in that book that praises Jack. I'm, I'm, I'm making the point about, um, that if you really want to succeed at anything, you have to really put your whole heart into it and over, not just today, but over the long haul, over years and, you know, forever. And also you have to go really wide in the sense that, and Jack, you were my role model for that, yeah. in the sense that it isn't just the writing. It isn't just the art that you create or the dance that you create. It's how you get it out there so people even know about it, you know? And what you're, I hate, I, I hate the idea of kind of a personal brand, but unfortunately that's reality yeah. these days. And uh, that's part of what we all have to do. We have to sort of, you can't just write it. You got to get it out there so people know that it's there. That's part of the whole process. It is. Um, and I think and we were talking about yeah. Hemingway's typewriter. That guy, way back when, he got it at the word out there, you know, it one did. way or another, in the Life magazine and stuff like that. He did. And when I read that in here, uh, when you wrote that, that made me feel so good to be mentioned in the same, you know, paragraph as far as, you know, doing that, letting people know your work exists, because unless you're independently wealthy and can just write and not have to worry about how you're going to support your family and how you're going to put a roof over everyone's head and food on the table and that, that sort of a thing, uh, maybe you don't have to worry about that as much. But if you are not independently wealthy, uh, then you really do have to think about those things, especially today when there are options to do that. Let's say back in 1985 might have been a little bit more difficult to do that from scratch uh, because there weren't these platforms to uh, study and then figure out how to utilize in a way that, uh, that made sense to connect with a readership and audience, uh, build that readership, grow it. Um, that was, that was much more difficult to do, I would say in the past, uh, simply because those platforms did not exist, but they do exist. So the battlefield essentially yeah. has shifted, has morphed, has evolved, uh, which means that we as artists, as writers, unless you 
don't have a family to support and, and don't have to and, and have another stream of income, maybe, um, uh, you do have to think about those things. Uh, and luckily for us, those platforms do exist. Yeah, it's a, it's a two-edged sword in the sense that before, say, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, people, writers didn't have that sort of infinite shelf of Amazon, mm -hmm. right? How many books are there a year now, novels? A million come out? Because anybody can publish anything, right? Yeah. Whereas in the day, like you say, 1985, 1990, 1995, the, the world was a gatekeeper's world, right? Mm -hmm. You could only get published if you went through an actual publisher, right? And there were the whole screen of, of agents and editors that would winnow then all the multiple submissions. Mm -hmm. But the, the good side for that was if you if your work was published, then it was only there was a limited bookshelf. There were right. only so many. Um, not to be boring here, but uh, no. my book, Gates of Fire, that's sitting right beside you there, Jack. Yep. When it came out in 98, I think it was, it got two reviews in the New York Times, one on Sunday and one on, on the, on the wow. uh, daily uh, thing. And that was all it needed. And that put it on the map. And I didn't, there was not, you couldn't really do um, Facebook or Instagram or anything like that because they didn't exist. Right. But you didn't need to because there were book reviews. But then all the book reviews went away. It's amazing. And now it's the world of, you know, social media or whatever else you can do. Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting. And here's the other, here's the other other copies right here. Here's my my original um that I read in uh 2001. Uh, and then here's another another copy right here. And uh, of course, here's one you signed for me in uh in hardcover. But uh yeah, I mean this book has been so influential on a whole generation of uh of of uh, members of the military. It's uh, it's, I can't think of another book that has been as influential as this one. Um, and which is, which is incredible. And it, and it should be a companion read too. So people that are, that haven't read it, I'm not sure if there are many out there in the audience who have not read it, but uh, if they haven't, then nice companion read here with the warrior ethos. Um, I think read gates of fire and read warrior ethos uh, or even vice versa. Cause this will inspire you to take the next step. If you're, uh, you know, worried about length or uh, <laughs> things like that, but uh, it, yeah, so fantastic. But um how many people have asked you about becoming an overnight success or have you sensed think that way? Um, because it was a long road and I love that this book talks about that road and talks about, uh, uh, Paris Island and Woodstock, which I want to ask you about, uh, and being a truck driver and being a fruit picker, uh, writing copy in New York, eventually making it out to LA, figuring out that world, working on all these different scripts. Um, uh, do people, do people think you were an overnight success? In the late yeah, 90s. they do. But I mean, they would for anybody because yeah. you've never heard of somebody until you hear of them, you know? Yeah. But, um, but it's such a strange thing. I don't know. Do you think there are, is an overnight success a real thing? Uh, I don't know if there ever was one. It's you, Jack. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, but, people uh, do say that, but then they're not taking into consideration uh, all the books that I read growing up. I didn't just start to uh -huh. read when I was like, oh, I'm getting out of the military. What should I have been reading for the last 40 years? Uh, or let's say... By, yeah. by age 10, uh, reading what my parents were reading 30 years, um, you know, hitting it like Hunt for Red October came out when I was in fifth grade. Uh, so I read it soon thereafter. And then by sixth grade, certainly I was reading all the books that my, uh, that were on my parents' shelves. I was reading the same type of thrillers that, uh, that I continued to read today by some of the same authors. Uh, David uh -huh. Morrell, yeah. of course, is still, still writing out there. Um, but I was reading guys like, uh, 
AJ Quinnell and JC Pollock and Mark Olden and uh, of course Louis Lamour and uh, Stephen Hunter and uh, like Stephen Hunter and, and still obviously working today as well. But uh, but I was reading all those books that were laying that foundation and knowing what I wanted to do as well. And then finding uh, uh, Joseph Campbell through the Bill Moyers interviews that he did in 1988. Um, it was called The Power of Myth. They had a couple of coffee table books that came out after that. And then Here with a Thousand Faces, yeah. I was reading that early on uh, in. 1988. So building that foundation over all those years, continuing to read, really getting an education from the masters, finding you uh, when you when you became an overnight success and, uh, <laughs> and started reading all of uh, all of your work. Um, so all of that really established a foundation upon which to build. Uh, I think it would be very difficult to just sit down without a foundation like that. And obviously, I don't have a frame of reference for it because I did do all that reading growing up, but I think it would be very difficult. And you, you talk about in government cheese, you talk about when you sat down and you started reading, was it in Carmel where you started reading all those, yeah. all those books and just reading all those books by the masters going, I mean, it, it, incredible. You gave yourself really an education, um, in, uh, in literature, the art of storytelling. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure if an overnight success really exists because everybody has some sort of a background that, uh, yeah. It got them to a certain point in time. And most of those backgrounds are going to have, are going to, going to have some hits involved and uh, yes. you're going to have to be resilient, <laughs> but, uh, but no one's watching that. No one's watching that journey. They're just seeing publication. And for you, two reviews in the New York times. Yeah. That's like, that's why I wanted to, to write this story in a way, Jack, because it's like to show those things that you don't, that you don't see, mm -hmm. you know, like you see Tom Brady get on the field, not to talk about him now that he's really in the news, he is. but, and you see him do all the stuff that he does that's so great, but you don't see, how did he get there? Mm -hmm. You know, and what were the, you know, what, you know, just the mechanics of throwing the ball, what were the, the film study, what the, the bad, you know, the, the catastrophes that happened to him a long way, the personal stuff like that. And that to me is what's really fascinating. Yeah. So that's what I was hoping to do in government cheese. But, you know, like what you were saying, Jack, if somebody becomes a concert pianist or a brain surgeon, we automatically figure, well, a guy put in 14 years yeah. of school, right? Okay. He was in a residency, he was an intern or she what? or a concert pianist spent just thousands of hours. Mm -hmm. But when you think about a writer, you think, well, the guy just, or the gal just sat down and did it. And it, it's absolutely not true. Like what you were, all your reading and my reading, you gotta know the canon, right? Mm -hmm. You've got, and, and not just books, but movies, movies too. right? Yep. You have to, and I, I think, you know, books that I've read, I've read 15 times. I'm sure it's the mm -hmm. same with you, Jack. I've seen movies 20 times. I can go shot by shot through various movies. And that's, you know, that's learning the craft, just like brain surgery or, or being a concert pianist. So they're really, and these days, of course, the you know ever since kim kardashian did the sex tape and became an overnight success <laughs> people think there's some sort of hack yeah that you can do and immediately you know you're going to break through right yeah it's not true right yeah. it's years and years and years just because you have to learn you have to, you know who who was good at anything right out of the box right, right. nobody yeah 
That's the name of the name of one of the books right in here. Do the work. <laughs> Do the work is down here in the pile uh, somewhere. Um, and I, it's, it's that's the best advice you can get. And you actually talk about that later. I want to to read the actual passage here uh, in a bit, where you uh, the moment where someone passed along that to you in a in, in the form of a lesson with well three lessons really um, about that. But when you talk about movies, um, I think that helped for sure with my writing. Um, because I was always watching these things, not just like, oh, let's go to the movies. I mean, I was in to those movies, especially uh, in the 80s, growing up during my formative years. I'm reading the books and I'm seeing the movies. I'm noting the differences, what I liked, what I didn't, what I thought worked, what I thought didn't. Um, I'm reading as much as I can about the making of those films, watching what little there was back then uh, before special features on DVDs, you know, before yeah, that, yeah. whatever you could find, the making of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I remember that. Um, anything I could find, I was just always taking all that stuff in and, uh, and, and, and just soaking it all up just like a sponge. And it's really came into play, I think, during one of my first conversations with the showrunner for the terminal list, um, because usually they don't like the author to be overly involved, um, right. in, uh, in Hollywood. And, uh, so I think he might've been a little nervous about that because, uh, for those listening or watching, they typically don't like an author on that set to just be, uh, upset that they're, you're ruining this, uh, this creation, uh, because you're going to have to take, uh, you're going to have, there's going to be some creative differences because you're telling a story visually now. And, uh, in talking with him for the first time, I was able to articulate that. That, that I understood that there would be differences because we're telling a story uh, differently here through a visual medium. And uh, I talked about, of course, the First Blood example being a very different book, Dave, written by David Morrell in 1972 uh, to the movie in 1983 with Sylvester Stallone. Very different, both fantastic, both classics <laughs> in their own right. Very different. Um, so, I, so as soon as I started to talk about that and really kind of convey that I was a student of this, I think it put him at ease, and we've been uh, been dear friends and uh, and colleagues, and have talked every day since. Uh, and that's been a few years now. <laughs> How much do they involve you, Jack, in uh, you know in in the in the shaping of Terminalist for 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 Amazon? Yeah, pretty involved. And when I talk uh -huh. to people in LA about it, they uh, kind of shake their head and say, "Oh my gosh, that's." That's amazing that right out of the gate they did that and it brought you in like that. And that's just because the people involved. It was Chris Pratt, Antoine Fuqua, the showrunner, David Agilio, and they wanted me involved. And Chris always wanted to go back to the book. Antoine, always back to the book. If there's any questions, go back to the book. Go back to the intent of a chapter or a passage or uh, a character's background. Um, always go back to the book. And uh, ah, so they, that's so even great. though there's differences, of, of course, uh -huh. um, but that's so, so through every, every part of the process, from writing the pilot, uh, where essentially I was just the sponge again, just advising uh -huh. a little bit with the showrunner, uh, to seeing how the showrunner and Chris Pratt and Antoine Fuqua, the director, took that out and then uh, pitched it to, to Amazon, to Netflix, to HBO, Showtime, Apple, uh, Hulu, and then Amazon ended up getting it. But uh, to see that and then see the writer's room come together and the ba different backgrounds that came into that. And for me, it was fascinating because now you have let's say 10, 11, 12, I think on this show, different writers that all no have kidding. different backgrounds. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Wow. All come together and then take ah. your work and then adapt it into eight episodes. Um, so that was fascinating to see. And I got to advise on all that. And then uh, those writers, for those listening, they go off to other projects. They're involved for a couple months and they do their job and then they go on to another, another project and they're done. Um, and then those scripts essentially revert to the executive production team. So me and Chris and Antoine and the showrunner, and then we get to fiddle with them 
until we get out there to shoot. And then I was involved with all aspects of shooting and then post-production as well, and then marketing, advertising. So I feel very fortunate that I got to be involved the way that I was. I learned so much. Yeah, you were fortunate, Jack, because you know, I know I was I've always was fired immediately off of any project <laughs> because they don't want the writer around, the original writer around. Yeah. That's hilarious. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But you were involved in a bunch of other projects because they weren't based on novels that you right, wrote. Right, were, right, yeah. Uh, original screenplays that you wrote yeah. with, uh, with a partner that you mentioned in the book, um, Stanley. Um, in the book. Yeah. Um, and that's fascinating, too. All the scripts that you guys, and I wrote, I actually, I wrote a bunch of them down. Uh, so, and King Kong Lives. Above the Law, Hard to Kill, A Million Dollar Mystery, a.k.a. Kiss Me and Pull the Trigger, Prime Directive, Total Recall, uh, Born Bad, Free Jack, Cryptic, The Nighttime Guy, Zero Odds. I mean, you were, you were involved in, in quite a few movies. And you and said some of, of these got... wound up in the, in, in the shredder. <laughs> well, didn't no. one day you climb over a dumpster at, like, uh, at one of the production studios and see a whole dumpster full of screenplays? Yeah, that that's... that's well, everything is true, and that's true, you know, that... Uh, just that uh, for those of us who those of us who are watching this now, uh, I happened. I was I, had, I was climbing over a fence to get to a parking lot at 20th Century <laughs> Fox to get to my van, and I was happened to look down, and there were these two truck-sized dumpsters below me, and they're they're uh, they were open, so you could look down and see what was in them, and they were both full of nothing but discarded screenplays, oh. and. Man, that was that made your blood run cold if you were yeah. trying to, yeah, get in yeah, that. But that's the reality of the of the world. And was that the same van that you had for all those years, or did you switch out at some point? Um, say that again, Jack. Did, what, did you, was it the same van that you had for all those years, or yeah, did you... I had it the same yeah for all those times. Oh, yeah, and what van was it? It's a Chevy van. It was a '65 Chevy van that '65. Uh, you know, that that I that I was living in through all of this period. Amazing. And your typewriter is in there. And, and then the typewriter's in there. Yeah. What happened to that van? Uh, I gave it to my friend David, who was married to a Navajo gal. And for all I know, it's it's out on the reservation in Arizona right now. Amazing. All in, you know, sheep shit from one <laughs> pasture to another. That's fantastic. Oh my gosh. So let's get up to the van then. Let's uh uh to the to the to the initial purchase of, of that van. Um uh, early life up until Harris Island. I mean, Vietnam War is going on. Uh, you make it to Woodstock. I mean, that that is a whole. That's a section right there. I know. I'm like I'm like your grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> no. but, uh, but uh that was sort of uh, when I was in my early twenties, you know, around the Woodstock time, and I was married uh, to a gal named Leslie, and we bought this van together, thinking that it was going to be, you know, kind of you know, ours, and we would take a lot of trips and blah, blah, blah. And uh, uh, through my own um, bad acting, I destroyed that marriage. And I wound up alone in this vehicle, you know, for many years um, with a typewriter in the back, trying to, uh, you know, trying to find my calling, whatever that was, trying to get through to, to actually make something work. Yeah. How long was the longest period where that typewriter went unused? Um, probably about seven years, something like that, I think. Yeah. Wow. Where I just carried it with me. Yeah. It's like, 
it's almost like a symbol in a novel, you know, if you yeah. where you know, that's a symbol of the guy's calling that yeah. he refuses to touch, you know, yeah. and then, you know, finally a moment comes when you just can't avoid it and you do have to sort of break it out of the junk pile and, and work on it. Well, as you're, as you're driving around with that typewriter in there, what are you, what are you thinking is going to be uh, the first book or the first screenplay or the first venture? What is it? You know, at that point, Jack, about? I really had sort of, uh, utterly given up on writing, you know, at least on, in my conscious mind. You know, I had tried to write a one book and it had been a complete fiasco, destroyed my marriage. And I just thought, I, I want to get away from this as far as I possibly can. And I was really trying to kind of make a life in the blue collar world. You know, when I was working those jobs, I, you know, as you know from the book, I really wanted to succeed at it, you know? Um, and, uh, the idea that I was ever going to be a writer just seemed like a, that it was a, t a crazy, stupid idea I had when I was too young to know any different. And, um, but I just couldn't make it in the blue collar world. <laughs> and I had, to, I had to write. <laughs> well, what, uh, what, what are the memories of, uh, of Paris Island? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, it's sort of like, like everybody else's memory of it. Yeah. When I was there was, I mean, I was a reservist. Right. So I, I joined, you know, hoping that I was not going to go to Vietnam. And but this was I was there in 1965 and 66. And they, in fact, they started bombing North Vietnam when I was there. And I was infantry or I didn't know, I, you know, you don't get your MOS till you actually graduate. Um, but uh, basically, we thought we were cannon fodder on our way over there. And I just I got lucky and they never called my reserve unit up. So I, I didn't have to go. But uh um, that certainly was, that was, you know, in the, the back of your, in the front of your mind constantly. Yeah. Do you ever think of, uh, a boot camp or in like, I, I like, I think of these, these tests that, uh, that societies have had really from the beginning of time so that people can join the tribe, essentially become, move from boys to become men and be productive members of that society and of that tribe. And then usually there's some sort of a test involved. Um, do you think that, Paris Island, um, that uh, Marine Corps boot camp, that uh, BUDS, that uh, Special Forces Q course, uh, those types of things are uh, in our DNA that young men are call, feel it, feel like calling to some sort of a test like that because it's I, it's just embedded in our in our DNA. I, ab I absolutely do. I do think it's uh, uh, it's the warrior archetype, you know, that that is a real thing, a Joseph Campbell thing, nice. right? That's something deep in your psyche and that kicks in, at least for men. I think it does for women too, in some form, mm -hmm. you know, that makes you when you're 13, 14 years old, makes you want to join the football team, makes you want to jump off of roofs, <laughs> makes you want to blow things up yeah. and makes you, and, and makes you want to seek out mentors, you know, whether it's a sergeant that kicks your butt or, or, you know, you know an older person in, in, uh, in, you know, buds training or whatever yeah. it is that you, and you do idolize them, right? You find some mentor and you go, this is the model I want to live by. I want to be this guy, you know? Yeah. And I do think it's absolutely in our blood, in our psyche uh, to do it. And for me, like writing Gates of Fire, which was like 30 years later, I was sort of uh, re-channeling Paris Island, mm. you know, and and because people don't change, right? I mean, I'm sure if we beamed ourselves back, 
to the Roman legions, to training for that, or for Alexander's Macedonians, how different could it be? I mean, the weapons were different, mm -hmm. but basically it's about learning that the group is more important than the individual, there that you've got to lay down everything you've got, including your life, if it comes to that, and that the rewards for that are a bond of brotherhood that transcends you know, just about everything. Yeah. Um, that doesn't change. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned mentors. Mentors are so, so important. I was lucky enough to, uh, uh, to find a mentor early on. Um, it took me under his wing, really taught me how to think logically. Um, introduced me to a lot of the works that uh, inform the pages of, of Gates of Fire and, and your other novels, a lot of your other novels as well. Um, but uh, when you don't have that, I think it's tough. And of course, the, the word goes back to a mentor, uh, as you know, uh, has, yeah. has, its, it has, has its roots uh, back in, in these times. Um, and uh, that's why I think it's so important for kids. And I think about my kids, who you follow on social channels, because yeah. you can actually find a mentor. Uh, let's go back to the 70s and 80s. Maybe you had a mentor through films that you like, through a, a John Wayne, through a Clint Eastwood, through a uh, Sylvester Stallone um, in these movies, in Rocky and Rambo films. I mean, those were very impactful. It's the power of popular culture. But essentially, I think for a lot of kids who maybe uh, don't have uh, a father figure, certainly don't have a mentor, which is different than a father, of course, um, that, uh, that those people, those characters took the place of in a lot of in a lot of cases and in a lot of cases in a positive way um and looking up to, to john wayne in these movies and clint eastwood in these movies and sylvester stallone in these movies um uh and today there it's so important who you follow because you can essentially pick a mentor almost and through popular culture on instagram today um is so important and that person can have a big influence on you and on your yeah. life. So it's so yeah. important who you follow, who you choose to, uh, uh, to occupy a little bit of that time that you're never going to get back. Even if you're just scrolling through and spending a few seconds with it, it can be impactful. Uh, so choose wisely. Yeah. And if you, if you think about the, the story, you talk about Clint Eastwood or Sylvester Stallone or those models that we as young boys or whatever pattern ourselves after. If you think about it from the from the screenwriter's standpoint, from the movie maker standpoint, they're tapping in as they create that story to the Joseph Campbell hero's journey. And they are deliberately trying to create a mentor type of experience because that's what works. Not because they want to teach anybody anything, but because that's what works as a story, right? That built where the where the hero has to face numerous obstacles and crises mm -hmm. and evolves as he or she mm -hmm. goes along and comes to an all is lost moment at the end, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So the whole thing fits together. I don't, I'm not so sure that the mentors that are being presented to people today are such great yeah. mentors. I, I you know, I, 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 I don't know. I agree. That's why I think you have to be particularly with so many inputs coming in today like you had to choose back then. You had to choose what movie you were going to watch. You had to choose what book you were going to pick off the shelf. They weren't coming to you. They weren't coming at you unless yeah. it's a commercial uh, on TV. Um, but uh, but today it's coming right at you because everything from your phones to your text messages to work applications, whatever it might be, yeah. is coming through a singular device. Um, Let me ask you, Jack, because James Reese is definitely, your character is definitely a role model. 
and in, for many, many kids today, I'm sure. Do you think of that as you're uh, evolving the stories or are they just coming from your heart and just coming from another dimension of reality? I'd say it's mostly coming from my heart and soul, but now that I am uh, this many years into it, now I have, and in the back of my head, uh, it didn't occupy too much bandwidth, but just because I've done so much reading and because of the effect that these characters, both film, television, and through through books, uh, had on me growing up, it was there, but that wasn't the driving force uh, uh -huh. for me to make certain decisions. I was just telling that story from my heart and my soul, guided by a theme. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks to you. Uh -huh. <laughs> that. Um, and uh, But now that I'm writing the sixth novel, so this last book tour was the first time where I had people come up that could have read the book when they were 18, even uh -huh. 16, 17. Uh, and came up and said, hey, I went into the military because I was inspired by your character because I love these books or someone who I went into law enforcement. And uh, I've talked to David Morell about this and asked him about it because obviously his character Rambo um, uh, influenced a generation really of people uh, to join the military. And I asked him, you know, what do you, what does he think about that? And he certainly does, uh, especially when he does the USO visits to burn centers, to uh, uh -huh. military hospitals where uh -huh. people are in there that are missing limbs and, uh, you know, say, tell him that they were inspired by him to join the military. And he's like, oh, my goodness. Oh, but, yeah, they say, yeah. but they say, I yeah. would do it all again. There's uh -huh. nothing I would change. And it's just like, oh, I mean, it's 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 really emotional, <laughs> emotional for him. It's emotional for, yeah. for me to hear just yeah. to, to think about that uh, through his eyes and then to, to realize that uh, a character that you create could do that. But I mean, Gates of Fire, much many more people have read Gates of Fire in the military uh, than have read read my novels, certainly. Um, but uh, but I do. But I do think about that now. But I don't think uh -huh. that it's I haven't made a decision based on that uh -huh. yet. Not that uh -huh. I'm not saying that I never, never will. Um, but it was interesting to have people come up during that book tour who are now 20 years old and say they've been in the military for two years now because they read the novel. That's, yeah. Uh, that's, you know, I think you know, in a way, sometimes just thinking to myself that like the characters that that I find myself writing, in a way, I'm creating mentors for myself. And the, there I'm writing somebody I would admire, you know, exactly. and uh rather than thinking it's me not at all i see myself in the in the protege role and projecting you know mentors yep no there's some, there's certainly something to that um and uh, what i did have at the forefront though as i started to create this character and go down this path was i wanted him to be somebody that a reader would want to spend time with if he was a real uh -huh. person would want to sit down and have a beer with, would uh, want uh -huh. to do a couple of shots with, would want to have coffee with, certainly. Um, and I think you did succeed. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I thought back to how that we have just very limited time on this planet. Uh, and you get to decide how you're gonna gonna spend that time. Uh, people are gonna trust me with their time here. And uh, if you're going to spend, let's say, let's say it takes you 10 hours to read, 15 hours to read it. If you're gonna listen to it, it takes 13 hours for Ray Porter to, to narrate. If you're gonna spend that amount of time with someone, with a, with a story that focuses on a character that he should be somebody you want to spend time with. I thought that would probably be a good thing. Uh, and I thought back to Magnum PI in the eighties, everybody loved Magnum. Uh, you know, the, all the, the guys loved him. The ladies loved him. Uh, and, uh, and it's cause he was so inherently likable, but then he could flip that switch 
and uh, and it, it, the first time in television history, 1983, where a uh, uh, in primetime television, a main character kills an unarmed bad guy. And that's Magnum uh, P.I. Is that right? It sure uh. is. Yep. Did you see The Sunrise is the name of the episode. Uh. And uh, yeah, two-parter. And a uh, bad guy who had uh, had Magnum in a prison camp in Vietnam uh, and is uh, in Hawaii. And there's a conspiracy element to it and everything. But you think the bad guy is going to get away and fly off. And he's a Russian. And, uh, and he kills one of Magnum's friends. And at the end... Uh. First time in uh, primetime television history where an unarmed Well, you can see that really fantastic. influenced you. That, that influenced you deeply, yeah. It certainly did. And, yeah. Uh, but he was like, but, but point being, Magnum's a likable guy going to the club, putting <laughs> the beers on his tab, you know, on, on Rick's tab or whatever. And then, uh, but he could flip that switch and he had those skills okay. and it was believable. Um, so that was, uh, so I did think about that because that character was such a, a huge influence on me. But, so, but I love creating these characters and I love, I don't know if you find this, but I find when I start, I have the list of names and if they're in other novels, you know, I have the name already in their position and I know a little bit about them. Um, but if they're new characters, I essentially have, let's say, uh, like Joe Smith, Secret Service agent. Okay. And I'll have him in a category, kind of a good guy, bad, good guy category, bad guy category, or kind of a, a neutral category. Uh, but I don't know them yet. I just know if they're good or they're bad. I know their name because um, I don't want it to sound too much like another name that's already out there. So I visually look at it. Uh -huh. um, and you have to be careful about that with Russian names uh, in particular. <laughs> but, uh, but I have that. And then I get to know them through their dialogue. As I write the dialogue, that's where I start to really get to know them because I'm, that, uh, I'm part of that conversation, essentially. And, uh, and there are things that I don't know that emerge just through them talking. And I'm creating it, but I don't know it yet as I'm going. I mean, I know that outline of the story. I have that. But I don't know these characters until they start interacting with one another. And I love that. I find that to be, uh, I love every part of the process, but that in particular, because <laughs> I'm like getting to know somebody new and it's, uh, and, and it's fun. Uh, do you get to know your characters through dialogue or how do you, how do you structure it uh, when you're uh, starting out? I do too, through dialogue. Mm. And it's really interesting. It's, it's such a, a, a mystical process, you know, that... You know, where are these characters coming from? You know, when they open their mouths and start to talk, who's putting those words in their mouth? You know, uh, like I was just, I just wrote a blog post a couple of days ago about this, where sometimes I feel like uh, when I'm working on a book, it's like at the beginning stages, mm -hmm. it's like I'm entering a dark cavern and I, and I, and the, the book is already there, Yeah, you know? And I've got this little miner's helmet, you know, with a yeah. with a light on it, and I'm I'm not really inventing it myself. I'm sort of discovering it as I kind of grope through this cavern, you know. And it's just like you say, the characters will sort of arise of their own mm -hmm. spont spontaneity, right? Mm -hmm. And will shoulder themselves into a story. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, that's part of the fascination of the whole thing when it's when it's going good. Uh -huh. And and these things are popping and have energy. It's really an amazing thing. It is. It's so much so much fun. Um, and uh, it's like a sculptor, and you're you have that that block of whatever it might be, and you're yeah. chipping away at it, and it's in, it's in there somewhere, but yeah. chipping away at it to make it uh, what it will eventually become, which is and a lot of times it comes out to be something that you didn't think it was going to be at the start. Yeah. No, that is exactly that is exactly right. Um, exactly right. Uh, golf caddy. I want to talk to you about being a golf caddy because obviously that influenced your overnight success. 
But one thing that, you know, when I was a kid, I was a caddy. Well, I don't know if people even know what that is these days. And <laughs> it's, it's, there's such a thing as, as golf carts. But uh, what, you know, your, that book that's right next to you, Gates of Fire. When I thought, how am I going to tell this story? I knew I wanted to tell the story of the Battle of Thermopylae and the ancient Spartans. And I thought, who's, who's going to tell the story? What's the voice? And I thought, and this kind of goes back to the caddy thing in the sense that these warriors, these ancient heavily armored infantrymen, the Spartans, they didn't carry their own armor. You know, it was, it was too heavy. They had somebody, in fact, they, uh, one Spartan hoplite warrior would have seven servants with him, seven to one. And so I thought, but let's only boil it down to one and call it like a squire, like a knight, a medieval knight would have a squire, right? That would handle his armor and mm -hmm. some, all that sort of stuff. So I thought, this is a great character that can be a kind of a fly on the wall. Let me, let me create this squire that was the second, you know, the, the servant of one of the great warriors, a true life character, Dionikas, mm -hmm. who really was there. And through the eyes of his, of his squire, we can really see a lot of great stuff. That, that's, that boy, it was a boy, he can go anywhere in the city. He mm -hmm. can talk to women, he can talk to men, he can talk to, talk to anybody, but he also is, is absolutely intimate with his master, with the, the hero of the story. So actually me growing up carrying golf bags for people gave me an insight into that that bond. If you ever watch a golf tournament and you see the caddies, the caddy for, you know, Tiger Woods or something like that, they're closer to him than the, the guy's wife. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, certainly and, in that case. You know, yeah. Sorry. But, <laughs> but the easy. intimacy is really, you know, they, and think of it if it's battle. You're, de if you're the warrior, you're depending for your life yeah. on, on this guy that's that's by your side. And you can't tell me that those guys didn't provide medicals. They were the equivalent of medics. You can't tell me they didn't rush out onto the field amid all the slaughter mm -hmm. and pull their guy out, you know? So anyway, that was how that, uh, that real life experience for me translated into something you could use in, in fiction. How old were you when you first uh, started caddying? I, I was 11. Well, how long did you do it? I, I did it all through college. Wow. That's a long time. Yeah. Do you still play today? I don't think I've ever asked you that. I, I do, but only rarely because like, you know, Jack, the demands of the writing life, uh, you just can't fuck yeah. around, you know, you no. got to put in the, put in the hours. You got to put in so the hours. And I, I play I, a couple of times a year and I go on little vacations. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I canceled my entire fall this year. There's just too much going on. I had a bunch of trips planned and I uh, canceled every, every one of them. Um, just so I could be here to, to write, uh, and also be with the family. I mean, it was, if I, if I yeah. done those and <laughs> had, had written, then family's out. So I, I chose not to do any of these trips and things that had been planned in some cases for years, but Hey, that's how it, that's how it has to be. And it's a yeah, I'm very fortunate yeah. that, uh, that I do have, <laughs> have to cancel my fall, uh, because there's so much yes. going on. So that's how I, that's certainly how I look at it. Uh, you, you're very good at the name, at the names, at pronouncing some of the names. And it's interesting because as I sat down to write the first novel, certainly second novel, third, uh, a lot of the times I never say the names out loud to ah, include right. the title of the terminal list. I wrote it. The first time I said the title was 
Well, after I had sent it to New York, I don't even think I said it my first time out to New York. Um, the first time I said it, I didn't realize that the terminal, it would be hard to say the terminal uh-huh. list. Like there's, there's a, the L and the L going together. If you say it looks great on a tie on, it looks great as a title, but I never said it out loud. And same uh-huh. thing with character names. Sometimes I'll be in an interview and if it's like a Russian name or a, uh, uh, uh some sort of a, a Persian name, maybe something like that. The first time I have to say it is in an interview and I've seen it cause I've typed it for so long, <laughs> but I've never said it. So I see it visually, but, uh, but you're very good at, uh, a lot of these, a lot of these names, uh, cause you're going back in time and, uh, do you say them out loud or do you just have them written down? And did you ever I, have I'm that like problem? You, I just have them. I just have them written, but you don't seem but to have I a problem. Do. Yeah. You don't seem to have a problem pronouncing them though. I do go to the, I do put a lot of thought into making them uh, accessible to the American mm-hmm. reader. Yeah. You know, and a name that, uh, or using nicknames, yep. you know, that are, e- that are easier to say, but I still get static where people say, I can't pronounce the name. That's too bad. I'm yeah. trying the best I can, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Cause I, I thought, I thought that because I was just going to read this part, um, from, uh, Herodotus, is that how you say it? The histories? Uh-huh. So, uh, so right here, and I, I just, I just love this part. This part is just, uh, ah, there's a few great lines that really speaks to what it means to, to be a warrior, but this is, this is fantastic. Uh, although extraordinary valor was displayed by the entire core of Spartans and Thespians, yet bravest of all was declared the Spartan Denikis. Dionikis. Dionikis. See, that's why I just, Dionikis. Dionikis. Uh, it is said that on the eve of battle, he was told by a native of, see, once again, I've read this a million times, but I've never yeah. said it. T-R-A-C-H-I-S. Trachis, I guess. Or you <laughs> I gotcha. I, I gotcha. I should just I say it and we'll just pretend by. that I've got it right. Yeah. yeah. That the Persian archers were so numerous that when they fired their volleys, the mass of arrows blocked out the sun. Dionikis, however, quite undaunted by this prospect, Remarked with a laugh, good, then we'll have our battle in the shade. I mean, that is just awesome. Yeah, that's great, isn't it? I mean, that's from Herodotus. That's yep. not from me. Yep. I'm just right there, uh, right at the beginning. From the start. Yeah. Yep. It's fantastic. I just love how that uh, speaks to everything that will now follow in uh, in these pages right here. Absolutely. Absolutely incredible. But yeah, the names thing, I, I, uh, that, that, that does get me. So now I, I, I at least attempt to say them out loud. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I know that Ray Porter, who does my audiobooks, will have to have to figure that out too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I try to, now I try to think of, uh, a, a little bit about audiobooks because it's the fastest growing segment of publishing. Um, so I realized, I don't know, maybe two books ago that it would be better for Ray if I don't wait a paragraph to mention that someone's accent is a, a certain type of accent or they're from a certain place to do that more upfront to help him uh, out so yes. he doesn't have to go back and uh re-record because i didn't mention that someone has a uh distinct southern drawl uh until three sentences into their dialogue <laughs> or, or, or yeah. something or something like that um and i, I want to ask you about this too um and this is uh so i'm just going to read it let's see uh, the solitary plus of this fiasco, and this is from your latest, your latest book. This is from Government Cheese here. This is from a part of your life. Um, the solitary plus of this fiasco is I acquired an agent. Her name is Radmala. Yeah. Radmala. Uh-huh. Um, she's Luke's agent. She's 63 and from Yugoslavia. She's also a psychic. 
She has a call-in show from 11 to midnight, three nights a week on WBAM from the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Over cheeseburgers at the Empire Diner, Mala asks me how soon I can finish this truck driving book. I tell her I've almost got three grand saved up from my ad job. I can live for a year on that. I'm about to quit and move someplace cheap where I can concentrate on nothing but the book. She gives me a long once over. Luke tells me, you've never finished anything. Can I count on you? <laughs> this is fantastic. You're the psychic. <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> Ramala apologizes. She picks up the tab. Outside, she informs me as gently as she can that she has to let me go as a client. It's business, you understand. She sets her uh, hand on my arm. You will, you will make it as a rider, she declares, but only after lengthy trials and abundant heartbreak. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what are you thinking when a psychic and agent tells you that? <laughs> but it is, it is, you know, one of the great things in all time storytelling is prophecies, mm. right? It's always great when, mm -hmm. you know, you will meet someone right, at a right. crossroads or that, oh, or that. Yeah. And so even if it's like some drunk at a party yeah. that tells you something, you know, that it, it's, 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 it's a, just a great little bit of storytelling, you know, and particularly when it's true, you know, when what they predict turns out to be true. What year was that? What year did she uh, tell you that? That was, uh, God, you know, it's like, I can't even, <laughs> I would say probably in the seventies sometimes. So before LA, before the move to LA. Yeah, before LA. Yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. And 70, boy, 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 was she right? 75 or something like that. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Amazing. Before you were born, Jack. <laughs> no, I was, I was uh, two, I think. Uh, but uh, that's fantastic. So are you in New York at this time? Are you doing the copywriting at this time then? Um, then I was just driving a cab at that time. Okay. But I was about to get, you know, back, get a job as a Okay. Got it. Got it. So she tells you that. And then uh, between her telling you that and making it to, uh, to LA, driving out to, to LA, what, uh, what was, was probably what, another two or three years, I think. Yeah. Two or three years. And uh, are you thinking that when she, when she made this prediction, um, is it kind of like an easy prediction to make though for her? Do you think she was really a psychic or do you think that, uh, She's like, hey, this guy wants to be a writer, kind of like she was a psychic. Kind of like odds of show, like you know? <laughs> odds of that being true for any writer, or it's probably yeah, pretty probably, high. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's a universal exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. That seems like yeah. a layup right there. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so you make it out to, to L.A. and uh, what was that that journey out there? What was the uh, what was the journey out to L.A. and then getting there and then linking up with uh, Stanley eventually and starting to work on these scripts. And, uh, and I love this part right here. I wrote this down, uh, this down too. Let me find it here. Um, here we go. I'm 37 years old. This is my third novel. I have poured my heart into it. It's as good as I can do. And it's dead, dead, dead. I don't have it in me to spend three more years writing number four for four days. I'm seriously teetering. My cat has stopped going outside. He's looking at me funny. Clearly, he's thinking, "How am I? Gonna, this is terrible. How am I going to clean up the mess after Steve blows his brains out, or get him down from the hook when he hangs himself?" Then, at the fifth midnight, I have a flash. Why don't I try writing screenplays? I'll move to LA. Why not? I failed as a novelist. Why not go out there and fail as a screenwriter? My friend Jennifer has worked as an assistant to a Hollywood agent. I phone her at one in the morning. You have to write a sample, she says. A screenplay on spec. No agent's going to take, uh, uh, take you on without something they can show around. The next morning, I'm standing in the dark outside Barnes & Noble, waiting for the doors to open. I buy a 3.95 paperback. 
how to write a screenplay. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Not only is the writing That's fantastic, but of crazy. Uh, you know, uh, when people have asked me about my journey, whatever it is, it's moments like that that they are interested in because it's sort of like the question is, well, how did you get from from A to B? What made you decide to do that? And so uh, where I've never really written about that before. So this was the end of, of a dream of writing novels that I had for like 10 years mm -hmm. where I just said, I just can't, I don't have it in me to try this again. And I really thought, I really, I was close to, you know, pulling the plug, you know? And then I thought, well, shit, let me try something else, you know? Let me try screenwriting. So I did write a script, as you know, in the book, and I did go out to, to LA. And that was uh, a real um, epical moment for me because it was like enrolling in an academy of storytelling, mm -hmm. you know, for, uh, where it was, it was a great experience to me, just like you said, Jack, when you got to be in the writer's room and all that. But of course, you were already a very successful novelist, whereas I knew nothing at that time. And for the next 10 years, it was sort of like being a, if you were a doctor, like being a resident at Mount Sinai or something mm -hmm. like that, where you were in the emergency room, you were stitching up people's bodies, you know, and little by little, you, you got to learn, you know, you would, oh. you would, you would write a script and it would get to uh, the point where it was submitted and people were actually talking about it. And then you would go in and get the notes that they would give you, right? Mm -hmm. Fix this, fix that, fix right. the other thing. And a lot of what they said, you had never heard of before. So you're really learning, you know, like mm -hmm. people will say, I hate the first act curtain. And you go to yourself, what the fuck is the first act right. curtain? You know? yeah. And right, it's that scene around page 28 in a screenplay. Or you realize, I don't even have a first act curtain. <laughs> so little by little, you learn mm -hmm. by the school of hard knocks. And that's really what... Another thing, Jack, that people sometimes ask me, how, do you, how did you last so long failing? In fact, like in this Hollywood period, I wasn't failing. You know, getting a check, you know, maybe a script didn't get made. Maybe I got fired. Three months. That inspires you. You're not like you're doing absolutely nothing. You're working in your chosen field and you're learning. Yep. No, that, you know, that is a great, uh, let's see, got to find it here. Um, Bum, 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 bum. This right here uh, about work, and uh, it's uh, Ernie tells you this, ah. and he says uh, he says keep working, don't turn anything down. Porn flicks, slasher movies, free stuff for friends. Uh, you're young, you're learning. Keep working. He cited three reasons. One, working means you're getting paid. I know you're getting peanuts for this job. Doesn't matter. It's money. It's validation. Every buck means you're a working pro. You're toiling in your chosen field. Two, when you work. You learn. Everybody has something to teach you. A grip will show you something about lighting. An editor will drop some pearl about what to keep and what to cut. Even actors know something. Three, you're making friends. Some kid who's schlepping coffee today may be a producer tomorrow. He may buy one of your specs. An actress you do some free work for today may get you hired for a rewrite six months from now. That, that's great advice, but it's about doing 
the work. And that's what you did for all those years uh, in Hollywood. When you look back on those years and you look back about your your partnership that you had, um, what do you think about? What do you uh, do? You look at that time as uh, uh, are those fond memories? Uh, help build that foundation for your future novels. Uh, what do you when you have when you look back at those times? What do you think? Yeah, about? that's that's a great question, Jack. And that's exactly it. I do look back at it fondly. You know, you were getting your ass kicked every day, mm. but it was uh, it was sort of like being. Um, did you ever see the last waltz, the movie about the band? No, I've not. Used to back up Bob Dylan. Okay, and they played for years in honky tonks and stuff like that, right? Before they finally broke out as this great thing, and. That's what kind of my period in Hollywood was, you know? It was like playing in honky-tonks. You know, you guys were throwing beer bottles at you, you know? And, uh, but, you know, you learned a new chord or you learned a new way to play a certain thing. And over like a 10-year period, you know, I really could say that, you know, by the end of that time, I knew what a story was. Yeah. Whereas when I started, I had no idea what a story was. Right. And... They can't take that away from you, you know? So, uh, yeah, so I do look look back on it as a, a real formative years that, uh, uh, you know, you could, the foundation, you know? Yeah. And I know I have to ask you about it um, because because uh, I, I did love this movie when it when it came out uh, in in the eighties, uh, and I made you watch it uh, when we were at Thunder Ranch a couple years ago. Uh, Above the Law, directed by what Andrew Davis, right? Uh, Andy Davis, yeah. yeah. And uh, and that's a great script. I mean, it's not. I mean, if you if you take the you know preceding years and maybe you know whatever, if you go back to just that script, it's fantastic. I think it's I think it's great. Well, it it certainly uh, you know got up on its feet and stayed there for 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 a B movie and stuff, and I'm certainly very much credit for that. But uh, um, yeah, but yeah, if you were to read it, you don't really and you don't think of the star, and you don't think of you know other movies going into the future, and you don't think of today. But if you're just to take it and just read the characters and just read that read that script, that's pretty dang good. You're very, you're kind, you're very kind, Jack. But I remember there was one, there was one moment that was sort of this. This is a little illustrate how you learn something. Mm-hmm. You know, we had uh, the script was pretty much done, and Steven Seagal had went to see some movie. I, I don't think I originally thought it was Lethal Weapon, but then I realized that somehow came later. Anyway, he came back the next day, and he said, "You got to write me a scene where I'm tortured." He had seen some movie where oh, somebody was I think tortured. it was Lethal Weapon, because I think Lethal Weapon, and someone will, of course, um, correct us. I think uh, 87 was Lethal Weapon, and 88 was uh, above, ah, was, maybe uh, so. above the law. Is that right? Maybe so. I can't remember. Yeah. But in any event, I remember thinking at the time, I've actually written about this. I thought, when he said that, I thought, that is the dumbest, most derivative fucking thing I've ever heard of, you know? But he he, he made us do it. And the scene played like gangbusters. It works. And only later did I realize or learn that there was such a thing as the hero at the mercy of the villain scene. Mm. And that you have, it's a convention. Every James James Bond movie. Bond when they've got the laser (laughs) between his legs. Every James Bond, yep. And... And I re- and I realized, oh my God, this is a staple of the action genre, and if you don't have it, it's a hole in your story. So I realized that everybody was right and I was wrong. 
And that thing, it really works. So that's kind of how you learn. You know, you come away from that and you go, ah, I've got to, there's such a thing as the hero at the mercy of the villain scene and you got to have it. Amazing. And were you on the scene on uh, set for that, for that movie? Uh, no, okay. I mean, only a little bit, Yeah, but no. Yeah. I mean, you had Henry Silva in there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, I, it's, I mean, it's, it's he fantastic. Great, yeah. 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 Pam Grier on the, in there. I mean, it's a great, great cast. It's really, really good. Um, but, and then you went on to do above the law or, or uh, uh, hard to kill. Yeah. That way I just got fired off of that one right yeah. away. <laughs> but those were, but those were uh, really good learning experiences yeah. because B movies like that have to, the story has to work. Mm-hmm. It's genre filmmaking, right. In the sense that, you know, you hit beat A, yep. beat B, beat C, but it's good to learn what those beats are so that the, you then can can make them original if you can. Yeah. So you're not just doing the same shitty derivative thing, right. but yet there is a, a type of story, a structure that you do have to hue to. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Have you, have you uh, or do you know of the uh, podcast that Quentin Tarantino is doing now? He started it no, this I summer. Know. It's called Video Archives, and it's fantastic. Ah. It's him and Roger Avery. Uh, I mean, you do have to be a student of film uh, or a, just a fan of movies, but like not just oh, a casual fan. Yeah, not just a casual fan. Like they go deep. So you have to be a real fan of film. Um, oh, great. But uh, but it's so wonderful. I think he started it in July. But uh, they pick movies, some you've heard of, some you haven't, because, of course, Quentin Tarantino loves those, you know, different uh, type of exploitation films from the 60s, 70s, um, and goes back to those. And they talk about those. And then they talk about some that you have heard of as well. But they they talk about all, they go deep down to all these different plot points. And I've really learned a lot from it over the last few months of uh, Ah, I got to check that out. Well, you're, you're a great fan of that. You know, Jack, you you love Magnum P.I. You love the, <laughs> back to the basics, you know? That's right. They, they hold true. That's right. No, they, they certainly do. They certainly do. Um, but I think you might like that video archives um, because, uh, well, for a lot of reasons. But what's interesting also about it is that they worked together, Roger Avery and Quentin Tarantino, in a video store in, uh, I think, Manhattan Beach. Oh, I didn't know in, that yeah, either. Back wow. in the early 80s. So they were, ah. they were behind the counter watching movies, fans of film. Um, and uh, then they'd go on, of course, and they, they were a screenwriting team together later. Uh, and then both did separate things as, as well. But when that video store went out of business uh, in L.A., he bought all the videos. He bought all the VHS tapes. So what they're doing is they're watching the actual VHS tapes Ah, from the store that they worked in. Um, And now it's inspired me to do something, too, because I sit down, finally sit down, maybe at the end of the night, and I need to watch something for uh, either someone's coming on the the podcast or there's something I want to want to watch for a certain reason for uh, a screenplay that I'm working on or whatever it might be. And I'm going and I'm like, what is this on? I'm yelling at my wife. I'm like, what is, is that Hulu? I'm like, did someone delete the app? And I'm trying to, what's the password? What, what, what email is this attached to? This thing's not working. Uh, so I just want to have old school. I'm going to get an old school television and I'm going to get an old school VHS. And I'm going to get the, what I started with when I was growing up was not a laser disc because that came later, uh, but a video disc player. Do you remember those? 
Oh yeah. That was when you had to shove the square thing yeah, in absolutely. and pull it out. And it was like a record player uh, yeah, inside yeah. there. So it wasn't a laser disc. Uh, and then you halfway through the movie, you had to push it in again, take it out, flip it over and put it back <laughs> in to watch the other half of the movie. So uh, I, I just actually, I texted my mom the other day. I'm like, did you keep those? Are those somewhere in the attic? <laughs> and uh, she says, no, I don't think I still have them. But uh, so now I'm going to start collecting them again. So I'm going to have a room here in the house with old VHS tapes ah. and old, you know, buy them for like four bucks on eBay or something and uh, and get the collection going again so I can just uh, kind of watch some of those uh, those old movies, but yeah. uh, in the, the same way that you would have watched them back in 1986, yeah. I mean, the lesson for that for anybody that's watching is that the people like Quentin Tarantino who are doing great original stuff, his background is is so deep. He knows, you know, I'm sure he gets oh, into lighting cues incredible. and all kinds of stuff on these things, yep. right? Oh, yeah. Just like I'm sure if we talk to Tom Brady, mm -hmm. he could tell you about a pass that Warren Moon threw yep. for the Houston Oilers exactly. in 1974, right? Exactly. And that's in his head. And that's why these guys are so good. Yeah. Because they have incredible depth of preparation, just like you, Jack. Everything that you read, all those books, I mean, you, sh you should have like... Uh, what do they call it? You know, like uh, the great books section, you know, <laughs> where you, the, you must read these books, you know, and, um, yep. Yeah, well, I, have yeah, my, like, I tried doing that with my reading, my book club, my reading list. And, um, I'm kind of re this last year got pretty crazy. So I kind of fell off, uh, uh, fell lower on my priority list, but I'm going to start uh -huh. that up again here and maybe add some more, some newer books to that list each month. I mean, I was doing six a month for a while, books that influenced yeah, me, yeah. influenced my journey, whether it's a book on uh, nonfiction, military history, that sort of a thing, or one of the thrillers that I read growing up, but I'd have uh, six different books every month. And so that's, that they're all archived on the, the website now, but I need to get that going again. Cause I really enjoy revisiting those, those books and uh, yeah. going back to them and think about, Hey, what, I'm going to write a paragraph about this now. Um, let's pick, let's say uh, red storm rising. I'm going to grab that and think about when I read that and where was I? Okay, I was like probably in eighth grade when I read that. Um, and then uh, being intimidated maybe by how long it was, but then feeling so accomplished when I finished it. And I think it's one of Tom Clancy's best works. Uh, and it's the second book, it doesn't feature Jack Ryan, of course. Uh -huh. But uh, but it's what I'm gonna say about that. Uh, so that's so uh -huh. I love doing, I love revisiting those. And it's I guess it's similar to what Quentin Tarantino is doing with the with these films. Uh -huh. Yeah, I got to check that out. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's a good one. It is a it is definitely uh, a good one. Um, I also wanted to ask you um, about uh, Sterling Lord and uh, your relationship with uh, with him. Um, that that was another, you know, like the the various books within Government Cheese. Mm -hmm. There's like eight books, I think, yep. and each one is named after a person, and each one was a mentor to me. You know, my boss when I drove trucks. And a guy that I picked apples with and Sterling Lord was my agent for, uh, he just died, you know, a few weeks ago at age one Oh two. Amazing. And, um, he was the guy who originally represented Jack Kerouac for on the road. Incredible. He sold that back in 1954 where the offer was 900 bucks and Sterling got him up to a thousand. <laughs> it was uh, Viking, I think, but he was, for me, he was great because he represented Gates of Fire and he represented uh, Bagger Vance as well. And um, I think he was, I guess he's like 30 years older than me or something like that. And he was just a gentleman from the old school who 
not like one of these commercial agents today that only wanted to exploit something mm -hmm. that really believed in what your arc was as a writer mm -hmm. and what you wanted to do. But he also would kick your ass a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. and say, you know, you can't be, uh, you know, uh, just humoring yourself. You know, we're in a business. You got to do something like that. But uh, a wonderful, great guy that, uh, you know, I really felt like I was, I don't want to say that I've arrived, but that I was at least with people who really were good. Yeah. You know, when I, when I got to uh, work with him. So Amazing. he was great. How did you uh, meet him initially? Um, I had, I'll give you sort of a slightly longer version of, and this is all in the book, which I know, you know, is that I, when I had the idea for the legend of Agar Vance, I was a screenwriter and I was in, a, I was like 10 years into that screen. And, but the idea came to me as a book. So I went to my agent, my Hollywood agent, and I told him I'm going to write a book. And he basically fired me <laughs> about so golf out of here. It'd be like you know, a book about golf. <laughs> and, yeah. And he, he was right. You know, I was really screwing him because he'd worked hard on my career. Now I was bolting to write a book. Mm. So, uh, but I didn't have an agent. I didn't know how to get an agent. So the way it worked was I had a, a, a lawyer, guy named Larry Rose, an entertainment lawyer. And I just went to him. I said, do you know any agents? And he connected me with a guy named Jody Hotchkiss in New York who worked for Sterling. I sent him the book. They liked it. And that was it. So um, amazing. And then you guys have yeah. it. And, and that's how things happen, right? You ask one person, they turn you on to another. Yeah. And uh, I love the story you told about him uh, when he passed away recently about uh, the end of World War II in tennis. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Shall I tell that story? Yes, please do. Please do. Just a quickie. Um, Sterling was a great, uh, he loved tennis. In fact, when like the U.S. Open would come on, he would take off work and just go home and watch TV. But, and he was a pretty good player. Yeah. Not at the international level or anything like that, but I guess he was pretty good. So this was immediately after World War II. He happened to be in France. And the French were putting together the, the French Open because mm -hmm. they wanted to bring society back to normalcy as quickly as possible. But unfortunately, all the great players were still in the army, right? They were in Algeria or Indochina or whatever. So somehow they invited Sterling to play in the French Open. And uh, it was way over his head, but he did it. Big, And he actually took the eventual champion to five sets. Not bad. So that was like, and on his keychain, when he was 102 years old, he had this bronze, little bronze disc, well-worn, and it just said, you know, the French Open is played at Roland Garros Stadium. And the disc just said, Roland Garros number five. And that was his locker that he had back in the, whatever, 1946 French Open. Incredible. And I just thought that that was really cool. Incredible. I mean, what a story. What a, what yeah. a general. I love that story when you when you told it on your, your Instagram. So ah. uh, for people that aren't following you, they should definitely follow you on Instagram. Go to that website, stephenpressfield.com. There's so much great information out there and they should definitely get all these books. Um, uh, if you're, if you're an artist, get all these books. Doesn't matter if you're, you don't have to be a writer. Uh, and then also if you're a leader, I always talk about that as well. Uh, people, uh, tend to think that these books are more for writers or creative types, but 
as a leader, you have to be creative. You have to come up with creative solutions to problems. Um, uh, and so there's a lot in these books about that, uh, I think. So I think uh, these work as leadership uh, books as well. And uh, anyone, anyone in life is going to deal with adversity. And you talk about those in here, oftentimes in a very humorous way, um, putting your spin on on things. And and uh, I just think they're they're absolutely fantastic. Um, and I want to ask you about a couple of things before I before I let you go, since we're since we're here together. Um, I loved in the book also in this latest one where you talk about um, what Jack Lord said, Hawaii Five O. Uh, and today we're recording this on October fifth, right now, um, uh, twenty twenty two, and this is sixty years of Bond today. Uh, Dr. Ah. No hit theaters on this day in 1962. Uh, And Jack Lord, of course, plays Felix Leiter uh, in Dr. No. Um, But uh, you write this thing there where he is quoted as saying, I don't ask questions. I answer them. And first you took it. The story of that was I was uh, had just gotten into Hollywood and I was like the lowest rung. And I was working on a script with a director named Ernie Pintoff who had done a bunch of Hawaii Five-0s and knew Jack Lord. If you can, if you guys probably have never heard of Jack Lord, but he was a star back in the, in the pre-Magnum um, PI days. That's right. That's right. Anyway, so I'm kind of writing the script and I had the hero ask a question. And Ernie, the director of this upcoming movie said, no, the hero never asks questions. <laughs> and I said, what? What do you think? Of course, you know. And he said, Jack Lord as he always says, I don't ask questions, I answer them. And again, I thought to myself, that is the dumbest, most egomaniacal statement <laughs> I've ever heard. But as I thought about it, I realized that what Jack Lord was saying, being a star and always having to be the star, was that the hero of any story has to drive the story with his intensity to accomplish. You know, whether it's James Reese or whatever it is, nothing stops him. And so even though like a detective may have to ask questions in interrogating people, but he never asks lame, weak, passive questions. He's always driving the action with a question. And so that was a great lesson to me that the hero is always the engine that the locomotive that that drives the story forward so that was it. That, that's how you learn things when you're in the trenches, you know. I, I thought that was fantastic. I'd never heard that before until I read the the book. There's so many wow. great stories in uh, in this in this book. I'm so glad that you that you wrote it. Um, so glad Diana convinced you to uh, to, <laughs> to write it. Uh, but yeah, Hawaii Five O that ran for a long time, and I remember watching it with my dad back in the day. Of course, everyone knows the theme song. Um, everyone can picture it in their head. They can picture that opening sequence, uh, and uh, most people who've watched it can picture Jack. Lord saying, uh, book him, Dano, murder one. Uh, <laughs> that was like every episode. Uh, at least I remember it being every episode as a, as a kid. And he, he got, he was very private after that. I think, I think he, didn't he just retire almost after that was over and stay in Hawaii, I believe. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. He stayed pretty Yeah, private. He knew what he'd had it good. Yeah. <laughs> he had a good run. He, yeah. he definitely had a, uh, had a great run there. Uh, and then well, I got to ask you one more question about Steven Seagal. Um, <laughs> I, I don't look good in the desert. Like that was another fantastic story. I loved that. Uh, and I could totally picture him saying that or someone in Hollywood that's a star saying something like that uh, in, in films. Uh, that, that was a great one. I don't look good in the desert. <laughs> so the, yeah, I'll, I'll give you the quick story of yeah. that for our listeners that I was working with, with Steve on just, just spitballing an idea. It was his idea and an idea about Area 51, mm-hmm. where the idea was that ETs were real. 
And they were being held in Area 51 and that his character, which was sort of like his above the law character, his Nico character, somehow got involved with the ETs and helped one escape and blah, blah, blah. So I'm spitballing a scene for Steve. And in the scene, he sort of dashes across this desert, you know, a few feet of desert in Area 51 to the building where they're holding the ETs, you know, and he stops me. He says, no, 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 the scene doesn't work. And I said, why? What do you mean why it doesn't work? He says, I don't look good in the desert. You know? <laughs> and again, I thought, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And then I thought again, and I thought, you know what? He doesn't look good in the desert. <laughs> and uh -huh. so these are sort of the things you have to kind of keep in mind. Yeah. You know, like when you were saying, introducing a Southern drawl yeah. early in the story right. so that it doesn't come around and bite you later on at the end. Uh, anyway, that's that's uh, so fantastic, and the, the book is so full of all of these uh, uh, these memories and uh, and these stories. It's just it's just fantastic. So I can't recommend it highly enough. And uh, by the time this drops, it will be out there. And with everything that you've done, so this nonfiction space, you have your your. Uh, uh, I mean, you're, you're publishing these on on your own. These are all these ones come from uh, from big publishing houses, uh, and you've written screenplays, and uh, they've made movies of your your work and. Uh, what, what's, what's next? What do you, uh, after this memoir, are you working on something else right now? Or what well, are I'm, the I'm things you want to work with, work on? What do you, uh, something that I'm, you haven't I'm, done yet that you really want to do? I'm like, I'm like you, Jack, you know, I've always got the muse. I believe in, I'm a follower of the muse. I'm a servant of the muse and she kind of tells me what to do. So I'm actually the book that's right behind you, a man at arms mm -hmm. or out there is about a specific character of mine called uh, Telamon of Arcadia, an ancient, the one-man killing machine of the ancient so world. So great. And so the next book is about him. Oh, um, great. Um, it's a follow-up to, to A Man at Arms. That is fantastic. I have a couple. Yeah. Uh, is this the one I have the page turned down? I have a couple copies of uh, of this one. I have one that uh, a couple, or one or two that I got, and then uh, one that you signed. Um, so uh, there's, but there's some great lines in here. I mean, I just love this book right here. So I'm so excited that you're going to work on another one uh, featuring this character. So that'll be fantastic. Well, thanks so much, Jack, for having me on, you know, and for reading this stuff and for, you know, being a real buddy and a pal of mine. And oh. it's, 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 it's great. You know, uh, thank you so much. This, this really, this will mean a lot, you know, this will get the word out. It's great. Oh, no, I appreciate everything. I'm I, without you. I mean, maybe the terminal list wouldn't even exist. Maybe I wouldn't have put that little yellow well, sticky I don't note. Think that's, uh, that's I mean, it would exist, but I was going to do it, but it might only exist as a stack of papers on my bedside table <laughs> because having that. that yellow sticky on the side of my computer as I wrote and have everything go back to that theme of revenge, uh, whether it was directly or more importantly, indirectly, I mean, that really kept things tight. And without yeah. hearing that from you, I wouldn't have had that yellow sticky on the on the computer right there. So maybe that uh. wouldn't have been there to guide. Uh, and I've had it for every every book since to include the one I'm working on right now. And the, uh. it's, uh, for, for this one, it's a yellow sticky and it says truth and consequences. Uh. That's, what's driving, <laughs> that's what's driving this one. Um, and uh, so maybe without you, it would still be on my bedside table. So, well, that I you. got from Robert McKee, the great screenwriting teacher. He he, he got that from Patty Chayefsky. And actually, I'm going to see 
Robert McKee in a couple hours. No way. He's coming out from New York to do Rich Roll's podcast, oh, wow. which is just like 10 miles from me. And I'm I'm just going over there to be a fly on the wall and cheer him on. Amazing. So that's, that originally comes from him. Amazing. Well, uh, please tell him that I said hello. He was on the podcast recently. Uh, of course, his, his books, right. uh, classics. That was a great one that you guys uh, did. So. so much fun. I had such a great yeah. time talking to, talking to him. So thank you for that introduction uh, yeah. as well. And so he thanks you too. Oh, uh, well, it's my, it was my pleasure. Yeah. It was an honor. It's just like this is. And, um, yeah, please, uh, please tell him I said hello and hopefully okay. we'll link we'll up uh, soon. I owe you a visit out there, uh, next time I'm in LA. So hopefully I'll be seeing you before too oh, long. I owe you a visit. Hopefully we'll get together at Thunder Ranch and see Clinton Heidi. Let's uh, do it once again. You know? Let's do it. Let's do it. We'll enjoy the rest of the day and we'll, uh, we'll All talk right. soon. Thanks a lot, Jack. Thanks. This is great. Take care. Take on the holiday season with the help of Navy Federal Credit Union. When you use the Navy Federal Cash Rewards Card, you can earn up to 1.75% cash back on all purchases. You can redeem your rewards as soon as you earn them, and using the Navy Federal mobile app makes redeeming easier than ever. Enjoy the rewards of cash back without any annual fee, balance transfer, or foreign transaction fees. There are no limitations on rewards, and they never expire while your account is open. Learn how you can get cheer to last all year with the cash rewards card at NavyFederal.org. Our members are the mission. Insured by NCUA, rates are variable and range between 12.65% and 18% APR based on credit worthiness. ATM fees for cash advances are up to $1 at non-Navy Federal ATMs. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org. For more information. If you love America, then Black Rifle Coffee Company has you covered for the holidays. Go to blackriflecoffee.com, check out all the gear, merch, apparel, and coffee roasting equipment. Once again, blackriflecoffee.com. I am a member of their exclusive coffee club, and I also get this big bag right here of Silencer Smooth delivered every month. You can go click on your favorite roast and set your schedule for delivery, and then bam, there it is on the front doorstep every single month. It is absolutely awesome. Go to blackriflecoffee.com, veteran-founded, veteran-run. Go check them out, blackriflecoffee.com. Thank you so much to Six Hour for jumping right on board out of the gate to make this podcast possible. Obviously, I am a huge SIG fan, having carried the P226 on every deployment downrange in the SEAL teams. Uh, but SIG was a supporter. They were friends well before uh, I was a New York Times bestselling author, uh, well before I even had an Instagram account or any social media presence whatsoever. So thank you guys all so much. Uh, Ron, Tom, Jason, everybody at SIG who gets up every day and continues to crush it and lead the way. SIG is always adapting. They're always at the forefront, whether it is firearms for citizens, whether it's firearms for our military, ammo, suppressors, optics, training, fire control units. They are doing it all, and they are always pushing pushing that envelope and trying to do it better each and every day through innovation and adaptation they crush. So thank you so much for that friendship and support. Uh, it will never be forgotten.
Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. All right, starting right here, Ironclad. Ironclad has been an incredible partner for a very long time. Of course, they produce this podcast and are dear friends. And they sent me a little care package here. Boom, Ironclad. Look at this, new hat for the Danger Close podcast. Look at that, cross tomahawks on that side. Ironclad symbol on that side. What else is in here? Nice new Yeti mug right there. Also for the podcast. And check out these shirts. Everything they do is top notch. Check that out. Bam. Danger close. And there we go on the back. Awesome. And one more in here. It's this one. And there it is. Ironclad. Check them out. They have some great stuff going on. There's some other podcasts that, uh, that they work on as well that are all fantastic, and they always knock it out of the park. You can check out the title drop video that they just did for my upcoming novel, Only the Dead. That's out there on my social channels and on my YouTube channel as well. All right, Protect, man, my buddy Nick Norris, who's going to come on the podcast here eventually. We were in the SEAL teams together, and this is it right here. Check this out, P-R-O-T-E kt.com so check out what's going on rest this is probably one that i should be taking a lot more these days so uh nick i'm gonna try i'm gonna try to take this a little bit more and get some more rest yeah no i'm not 2023 might be my year for a little more rest so i might save this up for 2023 but in the meantime look at all this stuff resilient and what's great about everything that nick does um well one he does it all at this level and he all this is going to be clean, and I know it's going to be. I can trust it. So that's uh, that's one of the main reasons that I love what's going on here. Uh, I do the hydration stuff all the time because you wouldn't think you get thirsty writing, but you do. So I'm always taking the hydration stuff. I love pouring that into uh, my water bottle and using that. This is resilient right here. Uh, those drops, a little clarity. I should probably take this a little more as well. And uh, primer. Oh, yeah. So... Bam, these are going to be constant companions as I move into 2023 here and maybe add sleeping uh, or getting a little more rest. I shouldn't say sleeping, just getting a little more rest, working out, training um, into uh, and eating right into the uh, onto my list of priorities. Move them up from the very bottom up there to the middle anyway. So uh, cool. But I'm looking forward to having Nick on the podcast. That'll be awesome. We've been friends for a long, long time. Uh, speaking of SEAL buddies, here we go. Dynamis Alliance, go to crusheverything.com. And uh, my buddy Dom Rasso, we're at SEAL Team 2 together. He started this company when he got out of the SEAL teams. And if you watch the Terminalist television series on Amazon Prime Video, you might have noticed this sticker right there in the beginning, in the opening credits to each of the eight episodes. This is on the wall of James Reese's garage. So uh, this is there. Dom just sent me a little care package here. There it is, Dynamis right there, Dynamis Alliance. And of course, Crush Everything, which is the shirt that I'm wearing right now. There it is right there. And this band. And uh, I've worked this into a couple novels thus far right there. The Will to Fight. Bam. Nice. Dom was on the podcast not too long ago when he came out here to, uh, to Park City. We had a blast. Dom also sent, look at this, armor up. Yep. So this will go with, with this as I start working out again here uh maybe when i finish book six but uh the bands check out everything he has going on over there to include these so dom sent me some more sheaths 
And here's the blades. Of course, I've had these for a long time. Go check out all the blades that Dom has over there. And these fit all of the knives. So this is a new uh, sheath design right here. Love this design. Wear this right here, appendix, and uh, it just fits. It fits perfectly with all of Dom's blades. So check that out. They come in different colors now. If you're wearing these with board shorts, I just want to spice it up. So that's a red one right there. This right here, blue. And right here, some little earth tones. I'm a big fan of the earth tones. If you've seen me talk about different holsters and things like that before. So, bam, love it. So Dom, keep crushing, brother. Awesome, love it. And gators, oh, yep. So they sent a nice care package. Uh, I've talked about a few of these. I've been wearing these since 1997, 1998, uh, 98 for sure. Uh, been on every deployment with me and they just sent me this right there, if you can see it, but uh, has the cross tomahawks and congratulates me on the success of the terminal list uh, in which James Reese wears the Magnums. And in my scene in episode three, uh, I wear my Raptors, uh, my personal Raptors in that, uh, in that scene, in that episode, which was really fun to shoot a little shootout with, uh, with Chris Pratt. Uh, and that was, yeah, a little a Land Cruiser in there. Oh, look at these ones right here, the Magnums. So these are the kind that Chris Pratt wore in the series because his head is a little bigger. So he wore these right here, the Magnums. And look at that. They personalized them for me. So Gators, check them out. Uh, they have been constant companions for, geez, over two decades. So thanks, guys. Appreciate it. And this is pretty awesome. Parker Mountain Machine. So check out parkermountainmachine.com. Uh, I've wanted one of these for a long time and just got one. Look at that right there. Ho, ho, ho. So this is the SIG P320. And uh, look at these guys did. They put the cross tomahawks right there. Got the compensator on here. This thing is legit. Oh, it's going to need a little optic right there. So I'll get that on there shortly. But uh, bam. Oh, very cool. So Parker Mountain Machine, thank you guys for sending this. Cannot wait to give it a run. Um, man, that is just awesome. And those cross tomahawks on there. Very cool. So thank you so much. Sincerely appreciated. And that is everything. Take care out there. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. For more on Stephen Pressfield, be sure to go to his website, stephenpressfield.com. There is a wealth of knowledge on there and link to his social channels from there as well. Be sure to pick up a man at arms, Put your ass where your heart wants to be and his latest, the memoir, Government Cheese. Pick all those up. You will not be disappointed. You can follow me on the social channels at Jack Carr USA. The website is officialjackcar.com. You can sign up for the newsletter there and click on the shop button for the merch. And be sure to check out that title drop video for Only the Dead, which is out there now on social channels and on my YouTube channel. Until the next time, take care out there, be safe, stay strong, keep fighting. My collaboration with KC Cattle Company is out 
now. Kansas City Cattle Company, veteran-owned and operated. There are two exclusive Jack Carr bundles. One is for the whole family, and that includes their award-winning Wagyu uncured beef hot dogs. And a second bundle option, which is my favorite, includes something special. A massive Wagyu tomahawk steak and a cross tomahawks branding iron. So you'll be able to add the cross tomahawks logo to all of your steaks. It's awesome. And you can go to officialjackcar.com, click on shop to check that out. But hurry, because they are going fast.